the, the for one week I will not run at all right. after a marathon, but I will I will be in the pool the day after, and not because I'm trying to maintain fitness, but because it makes me feel good and yeah. happy. So there's really no pressure to, for fitness or anything. It's it's just pure pure pleasure. Um, I'll hop on the bike a little bit maybe, um, and then the week after that maybe I'll start running very easy. But again, you know, just so I can run with my friends. Uh, be outdoors and just mm-hmm. enjoy it and I'll, I'll go like this for yeah I guess three weeks after the marathon and it's it, it doesn't induce stress at all it's just yeah. about you know feeling good having a good day um, socializing well mm-hmm. while exercising um, this episode of the smart athlete podcast is brought to you by Solpri. if you're active at all whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpri's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. And that's S-O-L pri.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has her PhD in astrophysics. Consequently, which makes sense, she's an astrophysicist at the Space Science Telescope Institute at Johns Hopkins. Um, She ran in the Olympic marathon trials here in the U.S. in 2016. And we'll get to hear about a story about her running or maybe not running, trying to qualify for the uh, French national team for the half marathon this year in 2020. Welcome to the show, Julia Roman Duval. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, all right. I, I get going and I should have said bienvenue à la podcast. Um, <laughs> but I didn't want to get too deep with the French, both because my listeners uh, don't speak French and because my French is very, very rusty at this point. <laughs> Your accent, it sounded pretty good on that. We have a new word, so. <laughs> uh, merci. Um, so you were, before we got going, I was asking you because you made the decision this year not to pursue the Olympic marathon trials again and to try to make the French national, French national team in the half marathon. So, um, so the listeners get caught up with what happened because I was reading the articles trying to figure out what happened with Julia? Give me a recap. What actually ended up happening? Uh, so I, uh, I trained throughout the winter preparing for this uh, Paris half marathon, which was the, the qualifier um, for the French national team for the half marathon world championships, were, which were supposed to happen on March 30th um, in Poland. Um, so I flew there, uh, my, my parents drove to Paris, uh, and then the evening before the race, um, we learned through the media that it was canceled because of the coronavirus pandemic, which was at the time just getting started in France. I think they had a cluster of 30 cases, um, uh, not in Paris, but not too far from Paris. Um, and so decided to just stop, um, all running events with especially because there were a lot of people who traveled from overseas to to race mm-hmm. um it was a little bit late because we we all had gone to the expo already right. <laughs> uh but um it, that's what happened um and so i missed the olympic trials because they were um the same weekend so i was in france i could not be at both um and so yeah i was it was a pretty major disappointment. I still don't regret the decision I made because mm-hmm. it was the right decision. Um, given that, you know, I'm 30, almost 38 years old, probably have, you know, another four, maybe five good running years, hopefully. Um, which means I had to try a new, new experience um, mm-hmm. and do everything I can to try to progress in my running career, quote unquote. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it, the, that's the decision made sense. I had absolutely no regrets, um, but it was uh, it was a, a tough pill to swallow, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, it, so what what kind of hours are you up to training wise per week? I I think I last saw in an article you were like eighty five plus miles per week, but I mean it, it's a considerable amount of time you're putting yeah. in. Yeah, couple of hours a day, I would say, if you include you know like strength work. 
yeah. cross training. Um, and that doesn't include, you know, driving to the track or shower or anything. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, um, I, I ramped up my mileage. I've been running since, uh, I was 31. So, um, six, seven years. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, every year I would try to get better and, uh, increase the mileage a bit. Um, I suppose all the way through, 2018, I was, you know, hovering around 70 a week at my peak mileage for a marathon, which is not a lot compared no. to, I guess, the other ladies who train at my level. Right. But, you know, I have, I have three kids and a busy job, so <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. It was more focused on quality. Yeah. Um, but then uh, for Chicago last October, I decided to try something new. Um, and so I, I increased considerably. I think I went all the way to 92 miles in six days. Mm-hmm um doubling of course um and that worked really well because I, I was in the best shape i'd ever been um and so i tried that again for paris although it was a little different because it was a half marathon so the i guess the the balance of speed uh speeds were different right. um but it it's been working out fine and you know i work around at it's more than 40 hours a week really um and you know, my kids are all in elementary school, so there's, you know, they're not toddlers, but they're not that big either. So they, they right. really need me for everything. Um, and so there's a big workload there. So I think 90, 90, 95 was, it's kind of pushing it. It was doable, but mm -hmm. I wouldn't train more than 12 weeks like this, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Those are the workload gets to be crushing. And so like, I don't have any kids, so it's hard for me to really understand like I can understand if you say okay it's this many hours and that many hours but living it is a different experience right because yeah. You, yeah you know you get home from work you get the workouts the kids are not gonna just be like okay mom, like mom's tired like we'll not be rambunctious like we'll just <laughs> hang out uh, they're, they're pretty good then then they know right but it's it's there's a workload independent of dealing with the emotional parts of it right like you yeah. have to cook three lunches in the morning with three snacks and then pack them up and then do all the laundry which is twice a day for us because they're sporty kids yeah um you know all that stuff like cleaning the house doing groceries helping with homework all that uh so it's just uh you know even if you count just the hours it's it's a lot um it's also a lot of interruptions right like right if i'm trying to finish some work at night um or I, when they're still awake but you know mom i'm hungry or or i don't know i don't know what to do i'm bored i don't know which book to read mm -hmm. so that kind of thing which is fine i love it you know i wouldn't have it any other way but it is it is um you know it adds up so it, it makes me wonder like do you have a really prescribed schedule every day where you're like this is the time that this happens and this is or is it just a matter of you have a schedule and then you have all the interruptions. Uh, we have, well, the schedule is basically, I get the run out of the way first thing in the morning because mm -hmm. there will be no other chance during the day. <laughs> uh, and usually that's uh, before everybody wakes up. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, like, well, from day to day, my work schedule varies a bit, but you know, the core hours are like roughly 9.30 through five and I have a bunch of meetings, telecoms right now, really. Um, and then after that, the kids have activities that are on a set schedule too. Um, so at least that's set. And then, you know, we're very, we're flexible after that, depending on, you know, whether, what they want to do or anything like that. Yeah. So I, I think you kind of mentioned this and it's something I don't think we take into account enough is like the, the emotional load of everything, right? Cause there's the stress of you know, there's just a stress of training. I have to think about if you're doing nine, you said you know, it was only 12 weeks, but 90 hours, you're probably working out somewhere in the neighborhood at 10 to 15 hours a week, depending on what kind of, you know, how yeah, that mileage like is structured. Yeah. 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 It's like, if it's more speed work, then you're going to have a longer time. You got to get to the track. You got to rest intervals. You got, so you know, 15 hours on the, on the one hand, if you compare that to a work week, you're like, okay, well, you have 40 hours of work week, but 15 hours of working out takes an emotional toll on you, you know? Definitely. And so I, I, I always wonder how different people cope with 
like the emotional load of everything. Um, I know I have friends who, when we were training or there, some of them still are in that, that kind of load or higher, it was like, maybe they'd have a go-to food. Like they loved peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or they loved ice cream or whatever. And that was their, you know, relaxation moment, I guess, or like bit of reward. Do you have any methods or um, like go-to items to kind of make yourself feel better after a long day? Um, yeah, a, a few, They're just little things. Um, I love chocolate and I will, <laughs> I will forget how much chocolate I'm eating if I'm <laughs> training very, very hard. Um, yeah. the, the good stuff too, you know, the, the lint and Toblerone. Um, mm-hmm. I, I usually work, um, after the kids are asleep to catch up a bit. Um, and so usually like around 9, 10 PM. And after that, if I want, I need to wind down, obviously. So mm-hmm. I'm always glad to have some series to watch on Netflix or Hulu, whatever, 20 minutes, no more. So I don't lose too, lose too much sleep. Yeah. But I absolutely need that. Cause I can't, I can't have a good night of sleep if I transition straight from like work to, to sleep. Yeah. Um, so that, that's very helpful. I was reading that you on average are only getting like six to seven hours of sleep a night. Uh, yeah, that's not enough. No, <laughs> yes. it's not enough. <laughs> no, but I've been able to function that way. And um, I mean, the main reason, right, is because usually I'll catch up with work until uh, like 9.30, 10 p.m. And then mm-hmm. I still have a bit of strength to do, you know, shower, talk to the hubby. And I'm in bed at 11, wake up at 5, 5.30. So, um, however, on Saturdays, um, that Saturday is the, the day I do my long run. So I, I wake up early, I get in, you know, two to three hours of running, makes me extremely sleepy. And so yeah. the kids know, and Saturday at 1 p.m., they know mom will disappear and she'll take a two-hour nap and we mm. cannot not be loud. <laughs> um, so they're, they're really, actually really good about this. They're, they respect that and they're always, you know, chilling in their rooms, reading books or watching a movie or something. We do, I do not hear them for two hours Saturday afternoons. And so that's a bit rejuvenating, refreshing. Um, I know if I don't get my Saturday nap, I will not have a good week after that. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's it's challenging. Some days, you know, you, I just roll out of bed, start running and I'm like, Oh gosh, I can't do this. Yeah. It's too hard. But you know, when I have my eyes on the prize all the time, right, this is my goal. This is what I want to do. And I know it takes to get there. Um, And so that's super motivating. Uh, but it is also important to have those downtime uh, throughout the year, right? You can't be sharp and fit 12 months a year. And so I let right. myself rest both mentally and physically after a big season or a marathon or yeah, that. Yeah. That's something I think a lot of people like to forget, or maybe some amateurs like to forget is that there is, you, like, you can't maintain that absolute peak fitness all the time as much as you want to. It's just the stress load would be too high to try to maintain. You break yourself down. Like I know in the last few years, my coach has finally convinced me after whatever the peak is for the season, this season is out the window. So who knows when that'll actually be. Um, We'll take like three weeks completely off, no workouts at all. And I've noticed that that's helped me really be, mentally ready to go again when we start training again instead of like instead of taking that three weeks and saying i'll just i'll run light or i'll get i do triathlon so maybe i'll get in the pool a little bit it's just trying to maintain some fitness the benefits mentally you know not even accounting like physically the benefits outweigh any kind of benefit you'd get trying to maintain some fitness in that time for me do you have time are you talking about time off completely or do you still do something no a hybrid right so the the, for one week i will not run at all right after a marathon but i will i will be in the pool the day after and not because i'm trying to maintain fitness but because it makes me feel good and happy so there's really no pressure for fitness or anything it's it's just pure pure pleasure um, I'll hop on the bike a little bit, maybe. Um, and then the week after that, maybe I'll start running very easy, but again, you know, just so I can run with my friends, um, uh, be outdoors and just mm-hmm. enjoy it. And I'll, I'll go like this for, yeah, I guess three weeks after the marathon. And it's, 
it, it doesn't induce stress at all. It's just yeah. about, you know, feeling good, having a good day, um, socializing well, well mm-hmm. exercising. Um, and I know, especially the pool after, after a tough race, I mean, sometimes, you know, the, the day after the marathon, I get in the pool, I feel like I'm a hundred years old. I'm not kidding. And then yeah. I get out. It's like, okay, I'm 50 now. It, it's much better. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's great for recovery. Um, yeah, like so I, I do pain. swim at least once a week, actually. Yeah. Um, so I guess we have to back up. So I was reading that you you swam a little bit competitively growing up, right? A bit, yeah. And then yeah. your introduction to endurance sports was with triathlon. Yeah, correct. Now I have a bone to pick with you. You, I think I read you mentioned you were getting really bored doing so. Like you were doing really well in in triathlon, but you were bored. So. How how did you end up being bored when there's like you have three sports to you know keep up with? There should be enough variety. So why like why was that boring? Uh, I think the 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 main point is I was training by myself. Okay. I did not have a team. I didn't have any anybody. Um, and I guess when I said that that I got bored is after I actually met this amazing running team which it was a complete life changer. But suddenly I was discovering what it's like to train with friends and teammates. Mm -hmm. And I guess compared it to my solo training, which ultimately just felt very boring after the fact. Yeah. Um, And so that's where I was uh, coming from. Yes. I think triathlon itself is far from boring, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but the, but the, the training setup I had was, was not very good. Um, Yeah. And you know, part of it is too that when you, I mean, I, I'm very busy, right? And training for three sports meant that I couldn't follow anyone's schedule or anything, right. uh, which meant solo training was the way to go. Um, and I found that, you know, focusing on one sport, but getting better quality out of it by joining a team and doing a more structured training, thanks to partly having, you know, motivation um, from a team showing up every day mm-hmm. uh, was much more more productive, more fun. Yeah. See, like... I'm, I'm totally with you. I, I get it now. Um, cause I came from, you know, I did sports growing up in school, ran in school and then ran on scholarship in college. And I definitely, when I had transitioned from having that team to no longer having the team, it's a very tough transition. So going the other direction, I can see how you'd be like, like, I'm, there's no way I'm going back to just <laughs> exactly yeah. by myself. Yeah. So that, that makes a lot more sense. I was just like, it, you know, cause, cause most people, if they're going to say like one direction is boring over the other, it's one sport because people are like, Oh, I like variety and there's all so many things to do. So I just wanted to know how you ended up with that decision. Um, so, for- you know, I think it's also that after a while, like you do the same sport for, you know, 10 years, mm-hmm. like it, it does, it feels good to try something new. Yeah. Um, and I think related to that, um, I, maybe it's the, just, being home all the time uh, during the pandemic, but I, I felt myself adrenaline deprived. I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, right? And so okay. I picked up mountain biking and, and skateboarding and like, okay, this is fun. Maybe I could stop running and do this, you know? And <laughs> I'm not gonna do that because I love running too much and it's it's freedom, right? You just need your shoes and you can go. But yeah. I, have, I have had a lot of um, pleasure actually going out uh, mountain biking, in neighborhood, neighbor, neighboring state parks and things mm-hmm. like that. And a change is good. It's refreshing. And it's good cross training too. So, so are you like, what, so what's the long-term plan? Are you, are you like, once you retire from running, you're just going to start taking up all these other sports and then seeing if you can dominate them or. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'll ever quit running. Um, I, I can't. And, you know, even when I was doing triathlon, I was, I was not running much, but I was running a bit. Um, I, I just, it is, has always been my favorite swimming as well. Um, but, you know, I've been thinking maybe trail running would mm-hmm. be something different that I could probably take on, especially because, you know, the, I guess the, the peak age for trail running is a lot later than for road running. Right. So right. there's a lot of, people, women in particular, who do really, really well in their 40s on the trails. Um, so, yeah, that I've thought about that quite a bit, actually. Um, 
I, I think I do have some good years left on the road. And so yeah. I, I want to, you know, make the most of it. Um, but beyond that, yeah, trail running would probably be one of them. Um, and then, you know, a mountain biking, I've been thinking about it too. I, I'm nowhere good with mountain biking. I just like it. Um, yeah. Just because it's, it's fun. Um, you know, it is a, a good, a good deal of adrenaline rush, mm -hmm. uh, going down the hills through rocks and things like that. So, um, yeah. And, you know, I always be, on, I want to be on the edge, trying new things. Um, just not settling, um, in my little routine. That's, I don't yeah. want to do that. So since you're thinking about trail, I always wonder where this gets started and you're, it doesn't seem like you're there yet. So, um, is there any temptation for starting to do ultras as you start thinking about trail? Yeah, <laughs> yes, that, that would be the, so I, I grew up on Reunion Island. Um, and there this, I guess one of the most challenging ultras, um, okay. which is the, the Grand Red It's the, the diet it's, you know, you cross the Island basically, which is about two mile high. Um, so the elevation is super crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, but I've watched these people do this, you know, since I was a kid and I always wondered, like, I wonder if I could do this, you know, and I think ultimately if I were to pick up trail running, that would be the end goal is try to be competitive for an ultra like this. That's, that seems to be where people go. And I just, there seems to be a division at a certain age. It seems like I see a lot of runners either stop running or really cut down on mileage or they go, all right, now we're going the whole way. We're going like 50 milers, 100 milers, all that kind of stuff. It seems like there's, I mean, there's plenty of, um, I guess, this is not where you, you grew up. How much time did you spend in France? I can't try to remember. Uh, I left when I was 24 in 2006. Okay. Um, I, was like, yeah. I was like, I'm trying to remember. I know UTMB, Autotoy de Montblanc is the like big one that I can think of in that area. Yeah, that, that's another one on the list, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I've spoken with people who have done it and a lady who was like getting ready to do it um, last year. Um, I'm sure it's been canceled this year. So it just makes me wonder about, I, I think you probably have a lot of interesting scenery you could get through an ultra is like in Europe where you would be completely comfortable, you know, traveling, maybe bringing the kids and being like, all right, we're going to go hang out for 40 hours and mom's going to run for a while. <laughs> yeah. They would love that. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, France is just so beautiful and diverse in terms of sceneries. Right. So I, I actually have done quite a bit of adventure racing in my okay. college years. Um, one of them was in the Pyrenees and one of them was in the Alps. Um, and I think we were able to see things that only ultra runners could see, right? Because mm -hmm. to get there, you have to run yeah. or, or bike, um, mountain bike. Um, and so that was, that was just amazing. And I, I hope I can get back to that kind of thing, um, in a few years, if anything, it's, such an immense feeling of freedom when you're, you know, at the top of the world and you get there with your own legs, mm -hmm. no assistance. Um, I don't know. You feel powerful and free, I suppose. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, I, I take my family to France um, once a year, generally, not this year, unfortunately, but we, we go hike in the Alps. Um, we're all very outdoorsy, very adventurous. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure... I'm sure I would have a, a very strong support crew if I were to, to run the, the UTMB. Yeah. And thinking about, you know, I talk to people in general, just like the people that don't run. And I talk about freedom a lot. That's the thing that motivated me. Like when I started, I started running when I was 12 and there's this, I, I feel like the word freedom doesn't really capture the whole thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I, I don't have a better word, but yeah, yeah, you have to experience it to know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's like freedom is like the closest thing that you have, but there's something about, and I'm sure you've been in this, especially as you like to do the trail runs and the adventure races, where it's like 
you go for long enough that you kind of your mind stops so you know and you're just like you're just moving you know you're not all these thoughts floating around in your head anymore you're you're just invincible this in a way <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah almost yeah yeah almost yeah it's it's so hard to communicate that to people and i'm not effortless I'm, would be another word that yeah come to mind yeah yeah i wish there was some easier way to to like share that experience with people you know that maybe don't have the uh, ability or drive to do it for themselves, you know, just to, to give them at least a glimpse because like, like I said, freedom seems like such a limiting word to try to share such an all encompassing experience. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I'll think of other words, but uh, yeah, (laughs) it's a, it's a, it's an experience. Um, It's unique. Yeah. This is a little bit of a detour, but, um thinking about obviously since you speak at least two languages do you ever find that between the two like there's something you know you know you can express something in french and then you're like english just doesn't have the quite quite the right words to express it you know i feel like i said my my french is not great but i got you know high enough in or fluent in i'm not really fluent but like you know, conversational enough to feel like there's some, you just, you see the differences in how things are expressed. And then I at least realized with English, I'm like, the language itself has to be limiting us as humans in like, in our ability to express things, you know? So I didn't know if like you experienced that more often since you're, you know, you were you have a PhD, you are, you work in astrophysics in English. So like, clearly you speak at a, probably a C2 level, you know? So it, it's, I just wonder how often you experience that. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually, I'm a, I'm a very analytical person and mm-hmm. it's always been hard for me to put words on my emotions and my feelings. Mm-hmm. And it's very frustrating because I know, I know what I'm feeling, but it, I just can't get it out. Yeah. Uh, and so it's gone, it's gone both ways, right? So sometimes I have the perfect uh, French word for it mm-hmm. and I can't find the English equivalent and vice versa. Sometimes it just comes in English and I'm like, I don't know how to say this in French. Yeah. Um, for emotions, it's mostly I can, I know in French and I don't know in English. And that's yeah. probably because I grew up um, French, speaking French, right? Whereas right. My, my work career was developed in English. And so all the technical words and things like that, I'm, I'm good with English. The emotions are more like the French. Right. Um, but it, it Sometimes I wish I could speak both because they would complement each other really well. Maybe I could get it together then. Um, but yeah, it's not easy. I do think the English is a little better because uh, it has more words right. and you can form words, right? You, which you cannot do in French. And yeah. I think you can also visualize the English much better. It's um, To me, that's a, a language that uses imagery quite a bit mm-hmm. in its wording. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you'll you know, like I said, I'm not high enough level in French to have noticed or not noticed this, but so it's interesting, you know, you said this, you know, in English, we'll, you'll see an, say an advertisement for a company and they'll smash two words together and make a new exactly. word and you already know exactly what they mean. Exactly. Yeah. You can't do that in French. <laughs> yeah. So there are, you know, and that, that kind of, uh, you know, composition of two words, I guess, which is one word in English um sometimes there's just no way to express it in french there's yeah. no word um and so you kind of have to take a detour so i find myself translating from french to english or english to french all the time and this is so again this is we're, we're going out a rabbit hole but this is just i'm way out of practice of french so i'm 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 just picking your brain um so do you do you speak with your kids in french are they fluent as well they are, they are not. Um, and the main reason is I am married to a Puerto Rican who is okay. a native uh, Spanish speaker. Uh-huh. However, I do not speak Spanish because I took German and Russian in school and he doesn't speak French. So English is the way to go. Okay. Um, and so for the kids, it was every time I try to speak French to them, they're like, no English, please. Why are you talking English to daddy? Why are you speaking French to me? Um, so, you know, I, I think if we had both been French speaking or Spanish speaking, it would have been a lot easier. Um, yeah. But, you know, the good news is every time we go to France or they interact with my family, they pick up a lot. So they, they know a little bit. 
Yeah. They can speak a few things. They understand more, uh, but they're not, not fluent. Okay. That's the thing. It's always, it's always a curiosity for me for like language blended families. Like my, my French teacher, like we just did it over um, uh, teleconference. She lives in Honduras. Um, she's from Quebec. And so she speaks French and English and her husband is uh, from Honduras, but is deaf. So he speaks, he doesn't, he like, understands, he can read lips in Spanish, but he has sign language. So then like her daughter will speak Spanish and maybe a little English, but no French. So it's, it's just like, it, it's always curious to me how parents choose or to what, like what language is spoken in the home. Yep. Yeah. And I, I you know, I don't know that we consciously chose. Um, mm -hmm. It is also true that my kids are really close together. There's only, I have three and yeah. The older and the, the oldest and the youngest are only three years apart. So um, the first few years of their lives, we basically had three babies um, mm -hmm. and having two busy jobs, it was a little challenging. And so when you know, we told them, put your shoes on, on right away, <laughs> not having to repeat it like five times before they get it. And yeah. so I think um, it, it was difficult at the time to, to teach them two or even three languages yeah. that we have in our family. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we did what felt right at the time, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I wish they, I wish they could speak French or Spanish, but well, um, I mean, if you, if you spend more and they time, will, probably, yeah, yeah they will. I was like, if you spend more time and they're young, I mean, especially yeah. like if they have, so if they have the desire, like you're fluent in French, it's, it's so much easier when you have somebody to speak with than if you're just exactly. going to like sit in a textbook, you know? Yeah. So yeah, and I can feel resource. like my youngest one is she's pretty curious. She's actually yeah. the the she's the one who will be the most open to uh to speaking or listening to me in French. You just like start slipping a few words in there, like here and there, just casually, just transition, and then tell your husband to do the same. Just like slip some Spanish words in and just yeah. see if they can get really confused. <laughs> he, he actually has been picking up quite a bit. Um, so he's gotten a lot better at it and me with the Spanish as well. Um, yeah. So. I mean, they're, they're, they're similarly rooted. So like, it, yeah, the, the problem is the, the Puerto Rican people speak very fast. Yes. So, you know, I took a, a years of Latin and obviously I know French. And so if you write the Spanish or if you talk slowly, I can understand, you know, most words or at least the gist. Yeah. Um, uh, but when they speak fast, it's like all oh, one word. I can't tell when one word stops and the next starts. So like right. that's a lot harder to understand. Right. So then where you grew up, were was it um, French and English speaking? Or did you have to learn English in school? Or how did that happen? I'm kind of worried, uh, like figuring yeah, out your journey to here. So French uh, is in school, right? Well, um, so I grew up just speaking French only and taking I don't know it's a couple of hours a week of English mm -hmm. I suppose starting the age of 10 or 11 um, and then throughout high school okay um, and I, I like languages I like English so you know I I think I was pretty good and definitely serious about it um, I also did German from the age of 11 through 18 yeah, yeah. although I have not spoken German since I left high school so that's <sighs> mostly gone although if i every time i go to germany it seems to pick up yeah it's kind of like buried um i was just wondering about so how do you get from i guess where you grew up to then you moved back to france and then to the u.s at what was it 24 26 24 yeah 24 so i mean is it like it was graduate school right correct yep so where where does that decision come in where you're like all right I'm going to go overseas for graduate school you know I think about people here some people do it but it's not that common and I don't know how common it is from people from you know Europe to come over to the US for graduate school so how how does that decision come up in your your life you have to be I have to think about this timeline you're probably married by this time right yeah yeah, so you're... Uh, no, no, not yet. No, I... I about to. Okay. A couple of years later. Okay. 
So we're, we're all in this like confusing time frame. There's a lot of things going on. How do you decide to pick up and like, you know, move across the pond as it, as it were? Um, so, well, it's, I guess the, con the continuity of a lifetime, but um, I'm, uh, I'm from a family of, of people, parents who love to move, right? So okay. even when we were in France, we'd move every two or three years by choice. Mm -hmm. So I actually lived in Normandy, in Brittany, in Grenoble, in Nice, in Toulouse, in Lyon, and then seven years in Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean. And I think there we changed house like five times. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, I, I'm not attached to anything, right? I, we would sell our stuff, park, pack our luggage and go. Um, and so I was doing um, double masters in France um, in astrophysics and aerospace engineering uh, with the aerospace engineering being a backup because I knew how hard it was to get a job in science. Um, and I was very lucky to be the one Frenchie selected to participate in a program called the NASA Academy, uh, which was run by in conjunction between NASA and the French Space Agency. Um, and so I applied, I got in, and so I, I spent uh, eight months um, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. when I was 22, 23, I don't remember. Um, so as an intern, uh, actually working on um, uh, instruments to uh, image um, um, planets, Earth-like planets. Um, and so it was, it was a completely life-changing experience, right? I, I got to experience um, research in engineering in the U.S. and how powerful and well-funded it is. Um, I also met the person who is now my husband. And so after that, I went back to France um, with my head full of dreams, um, uh, trying to finish my degrees. Um, and so the natural continuation of that was, well, I have to go back. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, I got accepted actually the same, the same um, grad school, Boston University, as my husband. Um, and then, you know, you, um, we, we built a life here. Uh, but yeah, that, and I, I think it was a very smart move because, you know, research here is so much better funded than in in France in particular, mm -hmm. there's a lot more opportunities for, for jobs or um, PhD positions, all that stuff. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm happy I made the move. And it wasn't difficult uh, because I had been moving all my life, right? It's like, well, it's just another place. Yeah. Um, so if you're moving all the time, are you attached to anything? I would assume maybe your husband and kids, but... Not really. I mean, you know, we've, we've been in Maryland for 10, 11 years now. Mm -hmm. It's probably the longest I've lived anywhere, actually, I just realized. Um, and, you know, we're, we're settling nicely because, you know, we, we love our house. We love our neighborhood. Um, the kids love their schools and their friends and their um, music teacher and Taekwondo teachers. Um, so I think we're, we're getting there where we're starting to feel <laughs> comfortable and don't really have a desire to move again. Um, but, you know, I, I would be completely okay um, selling everything and going somewhere else if, if the opportunity was, was worse, right? We'll always want to move to something better, right. not, not regress. So we're always open to new opportunities, I suppose. It's, uh, it's just so interesting to me, like, how those kind of things growing up, you know, influences how you end up, the things you do end up doing later in life. Cause it's like you move so often growing up, it probably made it easier to just say, okay, let's, you know, move to the U S to study and all these kind of things versus somebody who say, say, they grew, I, don't, I don't, I can't remember my uh, French geography off the top of my head, but say they grew up in a small town in France and never moved. Like it's, I feel like it would be less likely for them to be like, okay, yeah. let's, let's move. The it US. would be terrifying to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think uh, traveling and moving when you're a child gives you a perspective on the world that makes it, you know, not scary at all. But mm -hmm. um, if you do start moving around and traveling when you're an adult, there's, yeah, I could see how that would be very scary. Yeah. Yeah. So um, tell me a little bit about, 
what kind of work you're doing at um, SSTI and the kind of the kind of research you do. Uh, right. So um, I'm a I'm a tenure track astronomer, uh, and my my time is basically split between two main functions. Uh, one is purely functional, right? I, I support the missions that STSEI runs, uh, which are the Hubble Space Telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, and the Roman Space Telescope. Um, my particular position is with the Hubble, and so I work on um, one of the spectrographs on, on board the, the telescope, make sure it, it always works the best it can. Basically, mm -hmm. it's on top of its calibration, um, and users are happy with it, good, gets good data, well calibrated, good quality. Um, so that's about half my time. Right now, I'm also leading a very large program, actually the largest program ever executed with the Hubble. Uh, it's called Ulysses, um, and it's basically to get spectroscopy of uh, most of the very massive stars that we know in the nearby universe. Um, so that's my functional work. That's about half of it. And then the other half is my independent research. Uh, which in my case is on the interstellar medium. And so that's all the, the fluffy dust and gas that's between stars and galaxy. When you see like a nebula somewhere that's got all kinds of colors, um, mm -hmm. that's what I study. Uh, and I studied from a mostly, you know, chemical abundances point of view. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what, what's the structure, what's the composition of this gas and dust? How much carbon, oxygen, silicon iron is there? And why is uh, was it so, right? How did how did those galaxies get chemically enriched over time since the Big Bang? Mm -hmm. um, so in a nutshell, that's it. it. On day to day, it's a lot of reading, a lot of writing, a lot of communication, and a lot of coding, data analysis. Mm -hmm. How much data do you get to pull from the telescopes? I, I spoke to um, I don't know why I just forgot her name, but she's studying. Um, Titan, and she was mentioning, I'd asked her about, you know, how did all the telescopes get scheduled? You know, how does everybody get access and we get to share like time on the telescopes and that kind of stuff. So like how often are, do you personally get to end up pulling data for the research you're doing? Um, so it's uh, how often, um, how much I can answer, right? So the, the way these work is you have to uh, submit uh, proposals, right? It, the, the programs are competitively selected. And so every year there's a proposal call and then all the scientists around the world, not just in the US, can submit uh, proposals and then these get reviewed um, and then a few get selected to mm -hmm. actually fly on the telescope. And so when that happens, um, the observations usually execute within a year mm -hmm. um, and then um, they come down on the archive. You can just download them and they're not quite science ready, but close. Um, so personally, um, I've led so far three programs on this telescope, the Hubble, including two large ones. Um, so the large ones, so the, you know, Hubble orbits the earth about every 90 minutes um, while pointing away from the earth at the sky. Um, the programs I got uh, were roughly 100 orbits, so mm -hmm. it's about 150 hours. Uh, it, it, it's considered pretty large, right? So yeah. I'm yeah. Um, actually writing a paper right now um, to summarize the, the results, which ended up being very interesting. I was actually mm -hmm. working on this right before the podcast. Yeah. And on my run this morning, because we made a very interesting discovery. I'm like, I can't, I don't understand. I don't understand it. it was, <laughs> I was totally obsessing. So miles like five through nine are a blur because I was yeah. just thinking about it, trying to figure out why are we seeing what we're seeing? Mm -hmm. um, and running's great for that, right? Like I let my mind wander, yeah. sometimes solve problems, but definitely always make progress. Is that, is that consecutive hours? Like you just, like you get to say, I don't know, 150 hours. I'm trying to think how many days that would be. But is, do you get to say, okay, from the beginning of March until the 20th, like I get all of the hours of collection or, or how, like, how does that get, does that get split uh, up at all? Yeah. So for, for most programs, I guess when it executes, it doesn't really matter. So okay. um, there's a whole infrastructure at the Institute uh, which handles the scheduling of observations. And usually they try to optimize things by position on the sky. Okay. Um, so up, different objects are not always visible, right? So sometimes right. you have to wait until they're visible. Um, and then 
I guess when it goes depends on how all the other programs are assembled in the schedule. Mm -hmm. um, on occasions, though, you will have time constrained observations because, say, you know, maybe Hubble and Chandra, which is the X-ray telescope, want to look at the same object at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, you can put constraints. You just, you know, put it in your uh, in the file that sent, gets sent to the telescope. Mm -hmm. I want this to go during that time. Um, and so mine were not time constrained. So over a year, they were scattered around, you know, several months. Mm -hmm. um, but we always know when they always send you an email, say, hey, your data will be taken during that time. Uh, so you always know in advance when it's going to go. Okay. So do you get it? Is it sent to you, I guess, piecemeal? Like, hey, we've got five hours done. Here's that. And then here's the next chunk. Or do you have to wait till they get the whole data set? Uh, yeah, so it, it's, it's by, by piece, but you know, it's, we tend to look at things by, by target. Okay. Right. So for a given target, if it requires two or three orbits, it will all be taken at the same time. But if you mm -hmm. really want to stare at the same object for, you know, 15 orbits, because it's very faint, so you need a lot of exposure time, then it will probably be split, um, between different, we call them visits, but really it's groups of of data and you can right. you can set those to go back to back if that's necessary but mm -hmm. sometimes it's not so you know one could go in november and the next one in january or something okay um the question i always have to ask and this is for every researcher regardless of what they're studying is why does it matter that we know what's going on with all this stuff in space that's floating around that's not formed into anything so several reasons, right? I think long-term it defines us as humanity. We are curious. We want to know where we came from and if we're alone, if there are, you know, is there other kinds of life over there? Like how did the universe form? Why do we have planet earth and the solar system here? Mm -hmm. Are other galaxies like ours? Are other planets like ours? Um, I mean, I think it's, it's an existential question in a sense. Like we, I don't think we can help trying to address it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think long-term, that's why hard sciences like mine will keep getting funded um, because it's something that we have to do. Um, but in the short term, you know, there's um, all the science we develop, maybe not so much in astronomy, although for instrumentation, I think that would be true, have day-to-day -day applications, right? Like for example, the research they're doing on the International Space Station uh, sometimes you find a way to apply what you've learned um, in a way that's concrete, either in, I don't know, electronics or biochemistry or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, and, and that's important. And, you know, you, you give people jobs uh, to do research in a bunch of fields, um, and that can develop into completely unexpected um, applications um, and, you know, development of new techniques, whether theoretical or or actual actually applied mm -hmm. um yeah i mean my husband works on climate change and stuff i feel i feel like this is more, more applicable day to day yeah um but but it is very important to understand where we come from and why we're here yeah well it's, i think it's always an interesting conversation to have i am personally more like applied minded like I, my undergrad degree is in theoretical math uh, which is to clarify that it wasn't like applied as an engineering but i personally like working on projects where it's like i can see the end result of that project immediately with creating something or whatever so then but i also see the value in exploring for the sake of exploring partially because that's I mean, I feel like that's part of who we are as humans, right? As you mentioned, but also because there are things that we would find that you wouldn't find otherwise if you weren't just going out and seeing what's there, whether that, whether that means looking out into space or looking in the oceans or, you know, studying subatomic structure of things, whatever it is, like we find things and that ends up linking to something else that we didn't necessarily think. So I always feel like it's nice to hear from people like you who are doing this kind of research to see what you think about it and, you know, why it's important. Um, 
beyond just being interested. Because as soon as you said you had found something, you're like, your face just lit up. You're so excited about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that, and you know, what you're saying is true at all levels, right? So for, from one scientific field to the next, it is true. But within even within a given scientific field, let's say for astronomy, for me, you know, my, my, the research I do and the results I found for the interstellar medium sometimes inform people looking at, you know, galaxies right after the form right after the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it's a, it's completely interconnected, right? Like we are, we're looking here at, at systems and the, the knowledge now is so deep and broad at the same time that no single person can be an expert at everything. Right. And so some people would choose to study a particular say question or topic um but it always has implications for the rest of the system and so mm -hmm. it's important to you know always communicate with you know adjacent um communities of, of scientists that you know study slightly different things but yet you know there's interconnections that are important to consider and so yeah that's it's 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 true at all levels so that you bring up a good point in in that we kind of have to be so specialized now that you simply like one person's brain can't hold everything right so when you're talking about the system of learning um it will stay specifically within astronomy but so we have this system of learning and each person is devoted like i mentioned i think sarah hurst i think that's her name um, I spoke to studying the, like the weather conditions on Titan and you're looking at the interstellar medium. Is there, do you see a way to make it more efficient to share and connect knowledge between researchers to try to make like, to try to force those kind of connections where, you know, this person could use the information that you're, you're, you know, that you found. Is there any, better way than what, you know, kind of chance, I guess, that you would come across that? Um, well, so there, there's several complementary ways, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's chance, but most of the time it isn't, right? So that's okay. why we have peer-reviewed journals. Right. I think that publishing your research and your results in a way that is very well documented and reproducible and peer reviewed is a, a critical aspect of that because then it's out there for anybody to find, right? All mm -hmm. you need is even with Google. Um, if right. you search for the right keywords, you will find the paper. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of sharing of information is done that way. Uh, conferences are another way. Um, you know, I, 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 I do because I enjoy, um, but I feel like it's necessary for me to attend a few conferences a year and I always choose some where I know I'm going to be able to uh, talk to other communities that might be impacted by the research I'm doing and vice versa. Um, so there's a, a lot of that happening and then I'm very lucky that my institute is actually a, a big place so mm -hmm. pretty much all the fields of astrophysics are represented and so we have a lot of hallway conversations that, you know, okay. sometimes spark new ideas, new projects, new proposals, um, because we ended up saying, Hey, look, I found this. I was like, Oh, what? Yeah. I've been, I've been trying to figure that out for, you know, a few months. And so we just keep going and there's a new project, a new collaboration and new results coming out. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I think that's extremely important and I think that the current situation actually makes this very challenging just because we're all working from home and right. we don't have those spontaneous interactions anymore. Yeah. Um, and same for conferences, right? We, we don't have coffee breaks to talk about whatever comes to mind. Yeah. Um, but to me, it's, it's a, it's a very important aspect of scientific research. That's one thing I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I wrote it down earlier and I got distracted. I was wondering, are you still able to access all the new data since you're working from home? Like have they, everything's all set up properly? You can still get all the new stuff? Yeah, yeah, everything. We have all the infrastructure to do everything remotely. Actually, you know, we there's a few people in the building right now um, who are essential just because they have to send commands to the telescope and things like that. But mm -hmm. The vast majority of us are, are working flawlessly from home. The only real challenge is uh, childcare <laughs> because you can't work efficiently. Well, 
fortunately, my, my, my kids are in a very small and safe summer camp now, but mm -hmm. they were home for three and a half months and I, yeah. I, I barely got any work done. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the main challenge right now. But other than that, um, yeah, things are going well. It, it's, you know, as I said, being isolated from collaborators and my postdocs, I mean, I talk to them on, you know, Slack or, or like other teleconferencing system or whatever, right. but it's not the same. Right. Um, and so I think if it, if it doesn't last for years, we'll be able to keep the momentum going, but you know, even after a year, things are going to start getting a bit tough. Yeah. Keeping the momentum and the excitement and the motivation will, will get harder and harder. Yeah. I, I'm not sure what the solution is. I mean, aside from figuring out how to deal with it so we all go back to regular life, but I'm not sure what the, the solution is, you know, cause like you said, it's, it's sometimes it says unscheduled conversations. You're passing somebody in the hall and it's just, it's almost a yeah. spontaneous occurrence versus like, like us talking on the podcast. This is a, a time scheduled thing. We set up a time to get together to talk and it's not the same. I mean, we're having just a normal conversation, but it's not the same as just like, Hey John, you know, you know, what are you working on? How are you doing? That kind of stuff. Yep. Well, the, the, your quest section with other people is just much larger when you're in person, right? Because right. otherwise you have to choose who you want to talk to and reach out. Right. It's not random. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not chance. Yeah. All right, Julie, we're, we're starting to run down on time. Um, so there's a question I'm asking everybody this year because it really kind of runs the gamut. Um, and it's another experiential question uh, I'm curious everybody's answer to. So I like to ask you, what do you think the purpose of sport is? The main one? Do I get only one or can I you say so? Whatever you want to say. And you can give okay. multiple answers. You can, it can be personal. It can be broad. However you want to answer it. Okay. Um, uh, so for, from my own point of view as, as the athlete, right, I would say it's, um, it's a way of life, right? It's a lifestyle. And so... I, I know I can only be happy and feel good about myself if I exercise every day. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, I guess, positive energy, like mm -hmm. the people who live with me are also in the same boat, right? Every, they all exercise as well, but like everybody is relaxed and, and happy and having a good time because of, well, thanks to sports really. Um, you know, that's not everyone's lifetime and that's uh, lifetime lifestyle and that's fine. Um, but I think for us, it's, it's, that's what it is. It's a lifestyle that just makes us happy. Mm -hmm. Um, I could see how, you know, from an, an outside point of view, like, you know, someone watching athletes, there's a, um, a big entertainment part, right? I guess sports team also. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's when we have major competitions like the Olympics or anything, yeah, it's great for the athletes because that's pretty much the competition of their lives and the adrenaline's running high and it's a huge challenge. But, you know, also for the people watching, it's super entertaining yeah. and inspiring in a way. Um, so you can, you can kind of share your, your love for the sport and hopefully it will be contagious. Yeah. Um, I do think the, the whole world will be a much happier place if, Everybody had in their routine to do a bit of exercise mm -hmm. every day. Uh, it's a good stress relief uh, method. Um, keeps you strong, mentally sane. Um, and, you know, I, I, I know I make bad decisions if I haven't had my workout. Like I, the, the thoughts in my head are all jumbled up. I can't think clearly. Mm. Um, and, you know, I may get more irritable or... Uh, just not communicate as effectively. Uh, and I know, I know sports can help a lot with that. And so perhaps if everybody were to work out in the morning, uh, we would have like a happy, smoothly going country. I don't know. I do think it would help. Yeah. Well, maybe when we, you can get some extra time, we'll work on trying to figure out how to get everybody to exercise in the morning. That's going to be a task. You know, I have, I've tried and some, sometimes successfully, like I think leading by example, it, yeah. it really works. Right. 
Um, I know after I ran the Baltimore Marathon, um, it was, I think it was, I don't know, there was a lot of excitement in Baltimore. And I had a few people reach out to me and say, hey, I had not been on the treadmill for five years. And after seeing the race, I decided to give it a try and I had a super good time. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think, yeah, people were, were inspired and um, I guess happy as a result. You know, they had something new in their in their life to try and to make them feel good about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. No, One I think of my it's... goals is to try to get people to, to enjoy sports. I coach a few people, you know, for free just because yeah. I want to see them grow, grow in the sport and enjoy yeah. themselves. Yeah. I think it's definitely like a community effort and you'll see, like I live in a community that's fairly active. You see people out walking their dogs, out running all the time, out on bikes, and you don't necessarily see that everywhere. So I think you're right. There's probably some kind of effect there with that lead by example like if somebody goes out somebody else sees it hey maybe i should do that or do something and that that kind of you know spreads yeah yeah um julia if people want to figure out kind of what you're up to research wise what you're doing running is there any place they can see you follow you any of that kind of stuff um so i have i have a public facebook page uh, it's mostly for running updates, although in the last few months there haven't been much. But um, in general, I think that that would be a good way. Okay. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, uh, you know, there's stuff coming up on my the STSCI website uh, for my institute regularly. And uh, if I have, like, work results or anything, they would be advertised there. Yeah. That sounds good. I'm not huge on doing social media myself. So I totally understand, but I always like to, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not huge either. That's yeah. why. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like the, the public Facebook page I had to, I had to create because I keep my private page very private um, yeah. for family and close friends. And I had dozens of requests Yeah. Uh, weekly and you know, I couldn't accept them because that's not how I, I guess, keep my private life. But um, right. the, the public page is not a whole lot of work and I know it helps um with this leading by example thing also so yeah yeah absolutely thanks for spending some time today with me julia i hope you have a a good weekend thanks yeah you too